Welcome back to the Publishers Podcast, your place for psychiatry soundbites. Hi, I'm John Shelton, publisher of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. Thanks for joining me today for an overview of our January 2011 issue. Our lead article in the first issue of the year comes out of Massachusetts General Hospital. Joseph Biederman and colleagues set out to determine whether ADHD has an effect on cognitive variables across the lifespan. Many of the cognitive domains thought to be responsible for cognitive decline during the aging process are areas that have also been found to be deficient in people with ADHD. As a consequence, it's often hypothesized that individuals with ADHD may show lower levels of cognition as they age compared to those without ADHD. This study pursued answers to two important questions. First, does ADHD affect cognitive functioning across the adult lifespan? And second, are patterns of cognitive functioning in individuals with ADHD different from those patterns in controls? Data were used from numerous tests of cognition in a large sample of adults with and without ADHD who had taken no ADHD medication. Subjects range in age from 19 to 55 years. The authors hypothesized that cognitive deficits in ADHD would be observed across the adult life cycle. When compared with non-ADHD controls, participants with ADHD had lower scores on all cognitive measures assessed across the adult life cycle. Because this was a medication-naive sample of adults with ADHD, these results reflect the natural course of cognitive development in this population, suggesting that the association between ADHD and cognition doesn't get better, but neither does it get worse as the person with ADHD ages. Anxiety disorders are the topic of investigation in three articles this month. One of those is a review on treating anxiety in patients with bipolar disorder. This article appears in our early career psychiatrist section as an example of the excellent work from the next generation of researchers in psychiatry. In reviewing the literature, the authors found that most of the research from 1950 to 2009 is focused on treating anxiety disorders as they occurred during bipolar mood episodes. For syndrome-defined anxiety disorders in bipolar patients, olanzapine was superior to lamotrigine when used to augment lithium treatment, and risperidone monotherapy was no different than placebo. However, for nonspecific anxiety, studies reveal some benefit for divalproex, quetiapine, olanzapine, and the olanzapine-fluoxetine combination. Weaker evidence supports the use of cognitive therapy, and observational studies suggest potential efficacy for gabapentin and valproate. In the context of bipolar disorder and panic disorder, divalproex sodium and group cognitive behavioral therapy may have some benefit. 
Non-specific anxiety symptoms occurring during a mood episode improve with treatment of the mood disturbance. Although Divalproex may be the mood stabilizer of choice for anxious patients with bipolar disorder. However, when bipolar patients are not currently experiencing an acute mood episode, psychotherapy, benzodiazepines, and certain atypical antipsychotics are recommended for the treatment of anxiety disorders. Given their reduced risk for manic induction and episode cycling. In another article, authors tested levothiamine in a randomized controlled trial to see if it alleviated anxiety symptoms in patients with schizophrenia and schizoaffective disorder. In a group of 40 patients undergoing an eight-week trial using 400 milligrams a day of levothiamine added to their current antipsychotic treatment, a significant reduction in not only anxiety symptoms, but also positive and activation scores was shown. Even though general functioning, negative, and quality of life measures were not affected, levothiamine was found to be safe and well-tolerated and certainly worthy of further research as an adjunctive treatment for anxiety in patients with schizophrenia and schizoaffective disorder. Our third article on anxiety disorders explores health-related quality of life issues within the general population. The face-to-face National Epidemiologic Survey on Alcohol and Related Conditions of over 43,000 adults revealed that 10% of the respondents met one of four anxiety disorders. These individuals, compared with those who did not have anxiety disorder, had lower personal income, increased rates of medical conditions, and greater numbers of AXIS-1 and 2 dsm 4 psychiatric conditions. Generalized anxiety disorder, followed by panic disorder, appears to exact significant and independent tolls on health-related quality of life including impairment in social functioning, role functioning, and mental health. Results underscore the importance of prompt and accurate clinical identification of anxiety disorders and improving access to effective interventions. Our next article, part of this month's CME activity, is the first study to provide a detailed description of panic attacks and panic disorder in a military population. The authors sought to fill a knowledge gap, since the majority of mental health studies in the military focus on post-traumatic stress disorder, and they sought to overcome limitations based on the failure of earlier studies to use structured interviews with well-established reliability and validity. The authors had an 80% response rate to their survey, receiving responses from over 8,000 military personnel. Comparisons were made between respondents with no past-year panic attacks, panic attacks without panic disorder, and panic disorder. They also assessed internal measures, such as disability, distress, suicidal ideation, perceived need for mental health treatment, and mental health service use, and external measures such as lifetime exposure to combat operations, 
witnessing of atrocities and deployments. Results showed that panic attacks and panic disorder in the military are not only common, but are associated with negative mental health outcomes, such as increased odds of suicidal ideation, disability, and distress, which could be detrimental to well-being and work performance. Increased screening for panic attacks in the military could produce early detection that leads to reduced disability and distress in this population. Our first CME article noted that panic plays a role in suicidal ideations in military personnel. Others experiencing suicidality are patients who suffer from obsessive-compulsive disorder. Our second CME article notes that suicidal thoughts, plans, and attempts should be carefully investigated by clinicians in patients with OCD because suicidal ideations are not rare among this population as previously thought, but should be a valid concern. In a cross-sectional study of nearly 600 patients with primary OCD, 36% reported lifetime suicidal thoughts, 20% had made suicidal plans, 11% had already attempted suicide, and 10% presented current suicidal thoughts. The comorbid conditions most closely related to all aspects of suicidality in OCD sufferers were major depressive disorder and post-traumatic stress disorder. The sexual religious dimension and comorbid substance use disorders were associated with suicidal thoughts and plans, while impulse control disorders were associated with current suicidal thoughts and with suicidal plans and attempts. The authors have posted useful auxiliary information online. Visit our website, psychiatrist.com, for questions to ask your patients to assess suicidal behaviors and family history of suicidality. These questions are appropriate to use for any patient not just those with OCD. Next is a commentary on the current crisis of confidence in antidepressants. The lay press has honed in on the black box warnings on antidepressants, often misinterpreting its requirement, and the press has also questioned the overuse of antidepressants in treating mild to moderate depression. For these reasons, public perception of the safety and use of antidepressants has raised challenging questions for clinicians who treat patients with antidepressants. The JCP, therefore, gathered some thought leaders to discuss how clinicians could best address these concerns in their practice. Our discussions' recommendations are to, one, carefully weigh the risks and benefits of antidepressants when treating patients with depression. Two, closely monitor patients, particularly younger patients, for suicidality when initiating antidepressant treatment. And three, consider evidence-based psychotherapy as the initial treatment for patients with mild to moderate depression. We welcome your feedback on this publisher-sponsored continuing medical education activity. Let's move on to a topic that is a major concern among our clinicians, treating depression in the elderly. 
This January issue features two articles on this specific area of concern and both investigate the use of ECT in patients with dementia. One group of young psychiatrists wanted to determine if six rounds of electroconvulsive therapy were effective in treating depression in the elderly and whether it produced or exacerbated cognitive impairment. They tested about 40 elderly patients who had mild or no cognitive impairment and also patients with dementia who were and were not receiving anti-dementia medication. They found that ECT was not only well tolerated in geriatric depressed patients, regardless of pre-existing cognitive impairment, but most importantly, it was significantly effective in all patients who had no or mild cognitive impairment. ECT was clinically significant in those with dementia who were taking anti-dementia medication. The only patients who did not improve but continued on a course of deterioration were those with dementia who were not taking anti-dementia medication. Although effective symptoms remitted in all three groups, cognitive decline continued in most subjects. The other group sought to determine whether the location of structural abnormalities in the brain affected response to ECT for severely depressed geriatric patients. After performing MRIs and ECT therapy and using various assessment tools on about 80 elderly depressed subjects, they found that patients who had moderate or severe medial temporal lobe atrophy showed no effect of ECT on depression. However, patients who had white matter, hyperintensities, or global cortical atrophy had a three times greater chance of remitting. Assessment of brain structural abnormalities is a worthy tool to determine the course of treatment for depression in elderly patients. Our final article from the Early Career section reviews clinical trials to determine if the relationship between a positive or negative finding early in the trials could affect the outcome. Results from nearly 200 drug placebo comparisons from over 100 clinical trials encompassing almost 30,000 patients were pooled. Although the strength of the relationship between early and endpoint outcome increased progressively, only at week four was there a strong concordance between early and endpoint outcome. The authors ultimately concluded that antidepressant clinical trials should not be shortened to less than four weeks because it increases the risk of erroneously concluding that an effective treatment is ineffective. Four weeks is the minimum adequate length a trial is needed to reliably detect any drug versus placebo differences. Uh, we have three more important articles still to cover from our January issue. One that applies to practicing clinicians in particular refers to a proposed change in the APA clinical practice guidelines. The change states that second-generation antipsychotics may be specifically indicated for treating depression in schizophrenic patients. The authors challenge that statement by examining the impact of these medications on symptoms of depression, 
They compared olanzapine, quetiapine, risperidone, and ziprazidone against profenazine, a first-generation antipsychotic. Using the data from the Clinical Antipsychotic Trials of Intervention Effectiveness, or the CATI trials, that were conducted between January 2001 and December 2004. Their analysis found no differences between any of the second-generation antipsychotics and the first-generation antipsychotic perfenazine, and no support for the clinical practice recommendation overall. However, they did detect a small potential difference favoring quetiapine over risperidone, but only in patients who were having a major depressive episode at baseline. In light of current economic times, the JCP thought it important to bring you an article that examines cost-effectiveness. This time, we bring you one that examines the cost-effectiveness of psychotherapy for cluster C personality disorder. The authors examined long-term outpatient psychotherapy, short-term and long-term day hospital psychotherapy, and short-term and long-term inpatient psychotherapy in roughly 450 patients over a five-year time period. Their research was focused in terms of cost per recovered patient year and cost per quality adjusted life year. They determined cost effectiveness by setting a willingness to pay threshold. Costs were estimated from both societal and payer perspectives. The calculations from the societal perspective included direct medical costs and direct non-medical costs, such as lost productivity due to time spent in treatment. They also included indirect costs, such as future lost productivity due to disease. The payer perspective included only direct medical costs. The author's analysis showed that from the societal perspective, short-term day hospital psychotherapy resulted in the highest level of benefit for its costs below the willingness-to-pay threshold. Above the threshold, short-term inpatient psychotherapy was the most cost-effective choice. From the payer perspective, the optimal strategy changed from short-term day hospital psychotherapy to short-term inpatient psychotherapy per recovered patient year and per quality-adjusted life year. Overall, the study indicates that short-term inpatient and day hospital psychotherapy are the most cost-effective strategies for patients with cluster C personality disorder. Since behavior-based therapies are mostly ineffective in treating domestic violence perpetrators when alcohol abuse is involved, our last article proposes an alternative therapy. The authors performed the first controlled study employing an SSRI in conjunction with alcohol treatment and cognitive behavioral therapy. During the 12-week study, they tested fluoxetine on 60 non-court-mandated DSM-4-diagnosed alcoholic perpetrators of interpersonal violence. The ratings by spouses and significant others showed a significant reduction of anger and physical aggression over time. 
The combination treatment, including fluoxetine, decreased the abuse. Psychiatry soundbites for the January articles is not the end of all that JCP has to offer with the release of the January issue. If you visit the JCP website at psychiatrist.com, you'll see four new interactive CME activities. One addresses the effects of antipsychotic treatment in young patients with schizophrenia. Another offers strategies for selecting treatment and mitigating risk in patients with chronic pain. A third recommends alternatives to antidepressants in treating acute bipolar depression. And the final one looks at pharmacotherapy options for late-life depression. A great addendum to the geriatric depression articles already discussed in this issue. Thank you for joining me in a tour of the January 2011 issue of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. This is John Shelton. I hope you will join me for the next Publishers Podcast.